My husband was in bed. He had to work the next morning. And I was sitting in our living room by myself. The lights were off. I looked out over the water. I grabbed a pillow. I hugged it in close and I began to cry. I cried and I cried because all of a sudden it hit me just like a wall and I realized that I was doing everything right. I was giving him his insulin on time. I was checking his blood sugars as often as I was supposed to. I was scarring his little body with all of those needle jabs and pokes. I was getting him to eat when I could. I was dealing with the highs and the lows. And no matter what I did, I was never going to fix it. Welcome to the Diabetes Goddess Podcast, and I'm your host, Barb Wagstaff. This podcast focuses on the fact that you're more than your carb to insulin ratio or your time and range. Your diabetes may vary. And while I've played a doctor in real life for many years, I am not a medical professional, and any opinions expressed on this podcast do not replace medical advice. Please remember to always consult your diabetes team before making any changes to your care. My husband was in bed. He had to work the next morning. And I was sitting in our living room by myself. The lights were off. I looked out over the water. I grabbed a pillow. I hugged it in close and I began to cry. I cried and I cried because all of a sudden it hit me just like a wall. And I realized that I was doing everything right. I was giving him his insulin on time. I was checking his blood sugars as often as I was supposed to. I was scarring his little body with all of those needle jabs and pokes. I was getting him to eat when I could. I was dealing with the highs and the lows. And no matter what I did, I was never going to fix it. In season one, I promised to share more about my journey and my perspective in becoming a parent of a child with type 1 diabetes. In the first full-length episode, episode number two, I shared with you my feelings and what we went through when my son was first diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. From the misdiagnosis to being told that the next 24 hours would dictate as to whether or not my son lived or died, and what his life would be like going forward. As difficult an episode as that was to record, interestingly enough, I've been finding this episode 
almost as challenging. I have recorded it and re-recorded it. And hopefully today's episode, I'll be able to get out and to share with you. Because the first year had its own new challenges. You see, when the doctor told me that this was going to be our life, this was what we were going to have to learn to deal with. And when I heard that little voice in my head that said, this is what your life is about. I didn't realize the challenges that this would present. I didn't realize how emotionally challenging it would be. I didn't realize how draining it was going to be. How difficult and lonely a journey it was going to become. When my son was diagnosed in March of 2000, there was no internet as we know it today. There was no way to just grab my phone and Google things or connect with a Facebook group or join a Twitter discussion. I was alone. And as some of you may know, I was also alone in where I lived as such. My husband and I had packed up and we had moved to the far east coast of Canada. And we lived in a small community where he was from. So we had his parents nearby, but his parents were elderly. And his sister lived down the road, but that was about 20 minutes or more away. And we had been traveling a lot back and forth because this was an area that didn't have a lot of employment at that time. And so my husband would have to go away to go to work and I would pack up my older son and we would travel to be wherever he was. And then once my younger son arrived, things changed a bit and I settled into the community a bit more. But I still really didn't know a lot of people And certainly didn't know people well enough to truly share with them my experience and my pain. I had a very, very good friend who had been there with me since my son, the youngest son, was born. But no one truly understood exactly what it meant now to have a child living with type 1 diabetes. And in a lot of respects, I didn't know. But when I left that hospital, despite being ever so happy to no longer have to watch hours upon hours of land before time, I was terrified. Because now all of these numbers that the nurses and the doctors were throwing around, I had to know what they meant. I had to know what a high blood glucose level was and what to do about it. And I had to know when my son was going low because he was too young to tell me himself. And I had to know to prevent it or to help him. I was terrified. As much as I so wanted to go home and have a normal life and prepare for my older son's birthday party, it was safe when we were in the hospital. 
I would inject him, but I didn't have to be concerned about the consequences. I didn't have to plan his meals. Everything was done for us. And it allowed me to just be numb. Because to look at things like how weak he had become when we were in the hospital and he started to walk around again, if he fell, I had to pick him up because he had become so weak. And that hurt. Because how did I let this happen? I was his parent. I was his protector. How did I let this happen? And I know I did. I took him to the emergency room. I took him to the doctor. I did all the right things. But I still felt, how did I let this happen? But after those two weeks, they did send us home. And I hit the grocery store before we left so that I could have many of the similar snacks and food that we'd had in the hospital. Just because... I knew that those three arrowroot crackers that he ate before bed, that that was his, his starch and that he could have that for his snack with a glass of orange juice. Not having to think about some of these things, it was important for me. It made my life just that little bit easier because I was going to have to go back to a normal life. I was going to have to go back to dealing with my five-year-old son, soon to be six, or actually by the time we were leaving the hospital, I guess he would have been six. And, you know, a husband and a house and a toddler who now was going to be running around and enjoying life again. And I had to find a way to somehow fit diabetes in that life and we had been a family who really wasn't overly structured. We got up and we had breakfast at a set time and we ate lunch when we were hungry and we had supper when we felt like it. But now everything was going to be on a schedule. Everything was going to be measured. And when we left that hospital, let me tell you, everything was. I lived my life by that clock. And I remember a friend came over to visit and to see how my son was doing and when they arrived it was lunchtime or coming up on it and instead of normally I would have just sat and chatted with them and enjoyed the conversation and enjoyed the visit I left the conversation left it to my husband to deal with and I went to the kitchen and I started measuring the food and getting my son's lunch ready because it was important. He had to have lunch at 12 o'clock on the dot. Now, later on, I did realize that if he ate at 12.15 or 12.30, the world was not going to end. And it would be okay as long as his blood sugar levels were okay. But at that time, I didn't understand how his insulin worked. I was still grasping to understand and wrestling with the whole concept of, of what these numbers meant. So everything had to be done at the specific moment that I had been told. Snack had to be at snack time, not five minutes later, and lunch had to be exactly on time. So I sat there making his lunch and trying to be somewhat a part of the conversation, but truly focused 
on making sure that he had enough uh, starches, enough fruit, enough protein in the meal that I was preparing ahead of him. But as diligent as I was in making sure that we adhered to that specific schedule, I also was trying to reclaim our life and my life. So we would go about doing our normal routine and that included, because my son was diagnosed in the spring, I was out in the yard one day trying to get the yard prepared for the summer, cleaning things up and raking, and our house was still under construction in the outside portions. We were still adding buildings, adding shrubbery and, and grass. So as I was outside cleaning up our yard from the winter, my son got kind of whiny one day and he wanted to go inside. And I thought, no, you need to be outside. You need to get some fresh air. We're not going inside to watch TV or to play in your room. We're going to stay out here. We're going to get some fresh air because we both needed it. But he was fussy and I told him to just give me a minute. He was fussy. This wasn't going to work. He wasn't going to play with his trucks out in the yard. I was going to have to take him in. But I just need to finish this one task. So I told him to just give me a minute and we would go back inside. So I continued to try and finish my task. And when I looked around, well, I looked around basically because he was quiet. And you know that when your children are quiet, there's a problem. So I looked around because he was quiet. And there he was on the ground, curled up and asleep. I was horrified. Had I killed him? What had happened? Was he dead? What was going on? I picked up his little body and he stirred and kind of was groggy. And I knew he was sort of okay. I brought him in the house. I checked his blood sugar right away because he was small. He was two and a half. He could have just been tired. But now we had diabetes to worry about. So perhaps it wasn't about being tired. Perhaps his blood sugar had dropped low. So as I say, I grabbed his glucometer, cleaned his little finger, lanced it, got blood, and then I waited. And at that time, we had to wait 30 seconds. Now, for some people, 30 seconds was like, wow, that was so quick. But nowadays, of course, we know that we have a reading almost instantly, five seconds done. But at that time, it was 30 seconds, and they were 30 seconds of torture. Because was he asleep? Was everything okay? Or was I wasting valuable time because his blood sugar was low and maybe it was plummeting further and maybe he would do all those things that they had told me. He would go into a coma and he would die. As the clock ticked down, I waited, panic building, and I grabbed juice just to have on hand in case he really was low. And the glucometer read 
that yes, he had dropped low while we were outside. So I took the straw and I brought it to his lips and I got him to start sucking up the juice. And he drank the juice, eyes still closed, still trying to sleep. Terror still gripping my heart as I waited to see if this magic juice would work. And they had told me in the hospital that I had to wait 15 minutes after giving him that juice before I could check his blood sugar again and see if it was making a difference. So I waited. And I waited. And he began to stir. And he began to perk up. And he began to want to play again and want to run around. And I had to tell him, no, you can't go and play. You have to just sit here. And I would turn on the cartoons or some show that he was interested in and convince him to sit in one spot until that 15 minutes had passed and I could check his blood sugar again. And then he was fine. I began to realize that that orange juice or any other juice that I would give him or anything else to bring up his blood sugar levels was truly like putting batteries back in the Energizer Bunny. He wouldn't know that he had had any sort of medical emergency. He would just get up and go on and start running around and I would have to try and convince him not to run around. Imagine trying to convince a two-year-old, no, you can't play right now. You have to sit. It was hard. And as his blood sugar was back in range and he was fine and he was running around playing, I felt horrible. What kind of a parent allows their child to fall asleep in the dirt? Well, it's a parent who doesn't know any better. It's a parent who hadn't yet learned the signs of a low in their child and a child who was far too young to know the signs of a low in himself. To say I've forgiven myself for that moment, I probably still haven't. I still feel like I was a horrible parent. But we learned and I can tell you that the next time we went outside, when he started getting fussy, we were instantly inside checking his blood sugar and making sure he was okay. Sometimes he would be fussy just because he was, you know, a toddler who'd like to be fussy. But there were times when he was low. And if he fell asleep for no apparent reason, you can bet that I would panic every single time to the point when my son got a little bit older he was probably about five and we were on a drive and he was in the back seat and he was sleeping away and I called out to him and at this point he had a better idea if he was feeling low and I called out to him and he didn't answer he didn't answer so I pulled over and started to check his blood sugar levels and he looked at me and he said mom can't a kid just take a nap every once in a while? And I laughed at him and I checked his blood sugar levels and I said, no, not when you have type 1 diabetes. You can't. And at that point, thankfully, he wasn't low. He just really was a kid who wanted to have a little rest on a long drive. 
for most of that first year, as I say, I was on autopilot. I did everything as I should. Diabetes smacked that autopilot more than once in things like having him go low, terrifying me, having him not want to eat after I'd given him his insulin, watching him go low, watching him throw up because he didn't want to eat his food and that was his way to rebel. And I continued to push through again with no outside support because there was no local support groups. No one in the community had gone through or experienced living with a child with diabetes. My family wasn't close by. My in-laws didn't understand. And friends tried, but they didn't live there. They didn't truly understand what it was like to live with a child with diabetes. And as much as I tried to continue on autopilot, to continue to push through and to just do it and to keep my son alive because that was my job, one night it all caught up with me. I was waiting because as part of our routine, I had to check his blood sugar levels at 11 o'clock before I went to bed. My husband was in bed. He had to work the next morning. And I was sitting in our living room by myself. The lights were off. I looked out over the water. I grabbed a pillow. I hugged it in close and I began to cry. I cried and I cried because all of a sudden it hit me just like a wall. And I realized that I was doing everything right. I was giving him his insulin on time. I was checking his blood sugars as often as I was supposed to. I was scarring his little body with all of those needle jabs and pokes. I was getting him to eat when I could. I was dealing with the highs and the lows. And no matter what I did, I was never going to fix it. I was never going to be able to give him enough insulin. I was never going to have him in the perfect range that would allow this to stop. This wasn't like the times when one of my children required antibiotics and I gave it to them for their 10 days and then they were fine. They were perfect. They could go on with their lives. No matter how good I was at checking him, at keeping him in range, at giving him his insulin, at giving him the right amount of food, whether I was perfect or not, whether I did everything on time or not, it didn't matter. He was going to have this disease for the rest of his life. There was no cure. This was going to be his life forever. That broke my heart 
And I know, like, really, it took you this long to click in? And there's clicking in, and then there's truly clicking in. I mean, I knew this was his life. This was our life. This was the way things would be forever or until they were secure. And our doctor didn't give us a cure date. He never told us that this would be over in five years, in 10 years, in 20 years. He just said that technology would improve. But there was going to be no end to this. I could be perfect. He could be perfect. And he would have to live with this for the rest of his life. And truly realizing that with all of my heart and soul, having that pierce, that protective armor that I had created because I was just so glad that he was alive. I sobbed in the dark of the night. I had no lights on. I just sat in my living room, looking out over the ocean, watching the moon dance like stars on the water. And I cried. I cried until it was all out for that time. And then I wiped my tears and I went and I checked his blood sugar levels. There would be other tears. There would be other battles. And eventually I would find some support and I would find help. And people who understood. But in that night, I truly understood and it shattered me. I didn't protect him and I can't fix this. Isn't that what parenting, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to protect them and we're supposed to be able to fix it. Well, unfortunately, we know that that's not the case. That's not reality. And life would create situations in my children's lives where they would again experience incredible heartache that I couldn't protect them from and then I still can't fix. But as I wiped away those tears, I realized that my job, even if I couldn't fix it, even if I couldn't protect him from it happening, was to educate him and to provide him with the healthiest body that I could. I would do everything in my power to keep him as healthy as I could to allow him to live a full and active life. And I hope that I have done that. I hope that I have given him those tools. It seems that I have. He seems to truly embrace life on his own terms and diabetes while it can be inconvenient for him quite often. He doesn't seem to let him stop 
It doesn't seem to stop him. He doesn't allow it to stop him. So there we have the darkness in my first year as a parent of a child with type 1 diabetes. I went from autopilot to a pile of mush on my couch. And then after that, was able to dust myself off and find a way to go forward. And I didn't go forward on my own. It was in part due to some incredible supports as I learned about this thing called the internet. And I found an incredible family online that was able to help me. And I hope that you have been able to find someone to offer you support in either your actual life or in the virtual world. We're seeing more and more those imaginary people as we once referred to them in the virtual world can be some of the best friends and the best sources of comfort and wisdom that we'll ever know. Thanks so much for joining me today. I hope that this episode has been helpful to you, that you've enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed sharing it with you. If you did like today's episode, please go over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or share it with a friend or someone who might need to hear this information as well. As always, please remember that your diabetes may vary, so be kind to yourself. And until next time, wishing you all great blood sugar levels. <music> <laughs>